the Milwaukee Brewers and injuries. This Brewers team, like we said earlier in the program, this Brewers team has not been 100% healthy at all this season. Not one game has everyone on this team that uh, David Stearns and Craig Council put together have been playing together. Not one game. And I, I feel like you look at this, there are some significant injuries. Like, I know they termed Freddie Peralta's injury, quote-unquote, significant, but exactly what do they mean by significant? Is this going to be a two- or three-month injury? Because that's what I think when I think significant. I'm not thinking four weeks. I mean, the exact language was he is going to pitch again this season. So that would make you think two to three months, maybe September, August for that uh, return. You would ask me whether... Josh Hader missing three weeks would be more significant to the team and their success than Freddie Peralta missing four months. And I said, Josh Hader, because absolutely irreplaceable what he not only is he unhittable and saves every game, but his presence allows Devin Williams to pitch the eighth Trevor Gott or Boxberger or whoever to pitch the seventh. And it gives the bullpen a lot of flexibility leading up to Hader because you know that he's there. What this time period, including last night, is going to show, I think, is why no matter what the money is, no matter what the situation on the team hitting-wise is, the Brewers cannot get rid of Josh Hader. I oh, think that- that's the thing. I, I went on here, I think it was a week or two ago, and said, Josh Hader, I, I hate especially signing like players once they get to around 30 or later to long-term deals, especially pitchers. But Josh Hader's the one, out of all the players that they have to lock up moving forward, Josh Hader's the guy that they have to lock up moving forward. And I I hope and I think they should lock him up for big-time money till about the age of 35. Yeah, and at the end of that contract, as is the case with a lot of baseball contracts, because players are paid based on what they've done, not what they will do most of the time, the contract is going to look not great as it gets to the very end. And, and you have to accept that. But he's the only guy whose name has the op- or who has the ability to have his name put up there with the rest of the Hall of Fame numbers that are up at American Family Field. Yeah. No other guy really has that opportunity to have their jersey right now in their career. You would never say that you were going to put any of these guys jerseys up there. Maybe Christian Yelich if he started becoming the 18-19 version of what he did. How about Craig Council? You're not putting him up there as a player. Brewers legend. Yeah, I know, but I, I feel like he could work as a player and a coach or the the addition of the two. But yeah, I a lot of people bring up if the team needs hitting help or it's in an okay spot at the deadline but not its best spot. And one of the best contenders needs a closer. I mean, you can get a haul for him. He is one of the, we've seen a lot like 2016 when the Cubs and, and Indians went to the world series. We saw Araldis Chapman get traded there. We saw Andrew Miller get traded to the Indians. Those big time late inning, high leverage arms. And a lot was uh, traded for those guys. You could get a lot for him, but no matter what, no matter where you're at hitting wise, you just cannot part ways with him. And if they do, and it's about the money, I think the fans would be rightfully pissed at the ownership for not being able to to give money to a guy that, I mean, he could be one of the best closers of all time when he finishes. Well, I, I agree with you. And I think if you told me, hey, you can have Freddie Peralta out for three months or you can have Josh Hader out for three to four weeks, 
I'm taking Freddie Peralta being out for three months just because you need that back into the bullpen. And there were people, Ben, in 2020 and early 2021 that were saying, we need to trade Josh Hader right now. We need to get just a haul for Josh Hader because we have Devin Williams and he's going to be the next closer and he's cheaper and he is going to be under contract for much longer than what Hader is. But I don't think people realize, maybe they do now, how much of a difference and a gap there is between good Josh Hader and even good Devin Williams. Like Josh Hader has been the best closer in baseball for like the last three years. Yeah. And there's only one guy that's like legitly close to him in my mind. And that's Liam Hendricks. And by far, by far, Hader has been better than him this season. So you mentioned trading him for a haul because you have Devin Williams waiting. Do you know who plays baseball like that? It's the Tampa Bay Rays and they are great at it. But whenever they do that, whoever they give up immediately starts to suck. You saw with uh, most relievers, they get rid of Hey Ben. We've seen that up close and personal. His name was Matt Garza, right? Well, I mean, I was always a Matt Garza doubter. I was never sold on him, but (laughs) when I, they always give up the relievers and they have this crazy machine of nasty guys coming out of the pen, similar to what the Brewers have in the starting rotation. But the difference is the new guy that steps in is always as good as the guy who had previously left. Like Jose Alvarado, when he was on the Rays, was unhittable. I throwing ninety nine from the left side, nasty slider, nasty cut, and then they trade him, and now he can't find the strike zone. And they bring in guys in the bullpen that are filthy. The difference is, and Devin Williams is a really good pitcher, but he will never come close to what Hater can do. And I mean, also him in the eighth inning role. I you look through the bullpen. Having Williams in the ninth inning role means you are really uh, questioning who you can have as a setup man. But the way it's configured now, I would say it works very, very well. As soon as you lose that one key piece and you have to shift everything back one, the starting rotation, we're seeing them do it now, right? Because you see Hauser go up to number, uh, you know what? I'm going to call Eric Lauer their second best starter right now. And, and you can agree with that take or not. But Burns, Lauer, Woodruff, Hauser moves up where Peralta was. And then Ashby comes in. That starting rotation is able to withstand it, though, because of what Ashby has the potential to be. He's been pitching okay this year. And Peralta has been a bit up and down. In the bullpen, you just can't do that. Well, I'm glad you brought up the bullpen because I think at at the 7 o'clock hour, I want to talk a little Brewers bullpen moving forward. But I think overall, just to put a bow on this conversation... I think outside of the hater and how long will it be out, I think the biggest injury concern for the Milwaukee Brewers is actually Willie Adamas. Just because we know that ankle sprains can linger, some, depending on if it's a high ankle sprain or not, can last for months. Willie Adamas, in my opinion, has been the guy that he's kind of the the straw that stirs the drink. He's the guy that brings the energy. He's out there almost every single day. Craig Council has to basically fight him to get him out of the lineup. But then again, Adamas has been out. Arias missed almost the first month. Uh, Andrew McCutcheon was down for more than the regular seven-ish days for COVID as he had a tough bout with COVID. I mean, this team has not been healthy whatsoever. Hunter Renfro goes down with a hamstring injury. But I do feel like even with how good Hunter Renfro has been for this team, they can still get away with the fact that Yelly has been playing better than he did in 2021. 
though for most people would say that there was only one way for him to go. But Tyrone Taylor being able to get more playing time, I really do think after watching Tyrone Taylor for the last two plus seasons, he's a guy that can come into the big leagues and hit 240, 250. He passes my eye test. Yeah, with 15 to 20 home runs, and he plays average defense with an above average arm. I feel like they're, if Renfro was out for, you know, three, four weeks, I feel like they can at least weather that storm if Yelich continues to play all right. But yes, Willie Adamas and Josh Hader are the two big ones for me moving forward. So I'm going to put a Twitter poll up right now at Zone Madison on Twitter. Which Brewers injury is the most troublesome? And I don't want to throw Hader in this because we don't know how long he's going to be out. And he's technically not injured. And we don't know the situation and he's obviously not injured. But Hunter Renfro, Devin Williams, Willie Adamas. I myself or not uh, Freddie Peralta. I don't know why I said Devin Williams. Freddie Peralta, Hunter Renfro, Willie Adamas. I myself am saying Renfro. He has been the most productive bat the team has. Probably their best outfielder fielding wise. Losing him from the middle of that lineup. We kind of saw it last night. What could it what it could look like? High leverage spots for a guy like Andrew McCutcheon, who I like a lot, but I don't trust as much as Renfro up there. Man, I think if I have to put it in my hierarchy, I'd probably go with, since I don't think Josh Hader is gone for long, I also think it's probably like a two-week thing. But that is, again, just me completely guessing. I'm going to go Willie Adamas 1. Just because we've seen what happens, Luis Arias needs days off from time to time. And when Mike Brasso all of a sudden is playing shortstop, it hasn't been pretty so far. And when Willie Adamas is down, that means that Brasso and or Peterson are playing every single day. Yeah, but I will say Adamas should be coming back soon-ish. I think sitting here today and projecting forward, which injury, taking into account the timetable, Right, because Baralta is going to be a while. Adamus might be short uh, from today, and Renfro. We have no idea. I still think it's if Renfro. Renfro's down for a significant amount of time, like more than two weeks. Well, we were bashing on uh, Lorenzo Kane yesterday. You need looks like it looks like he's going to become an important part of that outfield if Hunter Renfro is down for a significant. Or does Andrew McCutcheon play a little bit more in the outfield? Maybe Keston Hero. Has been swinging the bat all right since being brought up. I know he struck out in a pinch hitting uh, spot yesterday, but has been all right since being called up. Yeah, Kutch could play left in theory. Injuries are starting to pile up. You had Luis Arias miss the first roughly month of the season with a lower body injury. He is now back. You have Willie Adamas on the aisle with an ankle sprain. You now have Hunter Renfro suffering a hamstring injury last night. Had to leave the game. Not exactly sure how long he'll be out. Freddie Peralta hurts his shoulder the game before. He is now going to miss, and to quote Craig Council, a significant amount of time. Andrew McCutcheon missed about two-plus weeks with COVID as he had a bad bout of COVID. And just in general, this Milwaukee Brewers team has not really been healthy at all. Not 100% healthy with all their players at all this season. Yet they still find themselves in first place in the Central, a top six team in Major League Baseball, and a team that continues to find ways to win series when it necessarily hasn't been pretty. Oh, and I forgot, Josh Hader now likely to miss time, not due to injury, but due to a a pregnancy complication with his wife. 
Yeah, so we had the poll running up on Zone Madison on Twitter. Which Brewers injury is the most troublesome? Hunter Renfro, who went down last night, Freddie Peralta, or Willie Adamas? The results are interesting. A lot of votes in right now. 56.1% say Freddie Peralta. And we had both mentioned that that one might be the least troublesome to us given the depth at pitching, the fact Aaron Ashby can come in and hopefully carry his weight, but losing the bats out of a lineup that's already been subpar, I guess it's fair to say, and not healthy, that would be more troublesome to us. So 56.1% say Freddie Peralta, 35.4 Willie Adamas, and only eight and a half voted for who I voted for, which is Hunter Renfro. Now, part of my reason of not voting Adamas I think Adamas arguably next to Burns, probably the team MVP Uh, last year. I think he was named team MVP actually, but he could be returning towards the end of the road trip. The fact that Renfro goes down and he said he doesn't know how long he's going to be out. It could be a couple days. It could be a couple weeks. That's the most troublesome to me, given uh, the fact that Hunter Renfro has been the team's best hitter this year. And it's a lineup that is not produced well enough. I they're winning a lot of games, obviously, but it's, I, I don't think anybody would watch the Brewers play and say that their offense has been good or great by any means. So his presence is really necessary. One of the best fielding outfielders. He is, so him being down only eight and a half percent say that, but that's what I voted. See, I actually voted Willie Adamas just because I know that depending, I don't think we ever really heard what the diagnosis was other than ankle sprain for Willie Adamas. Now, if it was just a tweaked ankle, he could probably have played through it. But since he's a guy that doesn't like to come off the field, plays almost every game, Craig Council, David Stearns, probably going to be more siding on the side of caution where Willie Adamas might just put him on the 10 day IL just to make sure that that ankle's healed. But if it's a high ankle sprain, that can be nasty for the next three, four, five months. And without practical rest and time off and ice, that might not get better until I know baseball is a long season, maybe even the off season. Now it didn't sound like it was a high ankle sprain. I haven't heard anyone report that, but I'm just saying, depending on the severity of that ankle, it could be literally a day or it could be us. It could bother him the entire season. I actually picked Willie Adamas. And the reason why I picked him is I know that we've bitched about Lorenzo Kane and we've, we've complained kind of about the outfield because Christian Yelich has been very up and down this season, which is actually a better spot than where he was last season. Yep. But Hunter Redfro has clearly been their best outfielder. But I still believe that there's you got to get a little bit of juice, the last little bit of squeeze out of that lime that is Lorenzo Cain. And I think Tyrone Taylor playing every day would actually improve this team. Now I was saying that yesterday when we were talking about replacing Lorenzo Kane, but also I feel like when you have a guy like Andrew McCutcheon that can also play in the outfield that could uh, maybe help the bleeding. If Renfro was out for a while, I also think that um, if you were really wanting to try and find a position to get this guy's bat in the lineup, I really do think Keston here could play corner outfield. Now he's probably more uh, tooled to play left field, but I think you, you understand what I'm saying. If you're really hurting for a bat and wanted to try and get a power bat in there, I just think they, they have a little bit more ability to cover the outfield with who they have and the guys that can technically play in a pinch in spots. 
than shortstop because it's literally at shortstop. It's Luis Arias and Luis Arias is good, but we also know that defensively he can have a bit of the yips, especially at shortstop throwing the ball and he can't play every day. And, and Willie Adamas being out, Luis Arias, who is supposed to be your shorting uh, starting third baseman has to move to shortstop. Therefore you are playing Jace Peterson or Mike Brasso literally every single day. And we've seen a lot of issues defensively from Brasso and offensively from both. I obviously would say Brasso is a little better offensively than Peterson this year, but you are forcing to play one of those guys every day and potentially when Luis Arias needs a day off, both of them are playing. Oh, but you know, back in my day, uh, back in my day, someone like Willie Adamas would just play through a high ankle sprain. That was something that that would never hinder someone's ability to play because kids these days are soft and they don't want to go play. Baseball. I do want to say this though about the Brewers, you kind of gotta you kind of gotta smile a little bit if you're a Brewer fan because I agree with you. I think long term, out of these three players, the guy they can get away with for being out the longest is Freddie Peralta, and that's just because the Milwaukee Brewers have an embarrassment of riches at the starting pitcher position. Again, Corbin Burns, Cy Young Award winner. The year before, he was one out short of qualifying to be a top five Cy Young guy. He is your ace. Brandon Woodruff had been your ace every single year the last three years before Corbin Burns earned that right this year. He has been the most consistent Milwaukee Brewers pitcher for the last three years. Freddie Peralta, he had shown flashes in 2018. Now, all of a sudden, you have Freddie Peralta, who's been pitching extremely well the last, we'll say, two-ish years. He goes on the shelf. He was in the top ten. All three of those guys in the top ten of Cy Young voting in the NL last year. Now you have Eric Lauer, who's looking like the ace, also left-handed. And right now, if the season was over, he'd finish in the top five of the Cy Young this year. And then you have Mr. Consistency himself, Adrian Hauser, who's going to go out there and give you five to six innings and, you know, a handful of strikeouts and a handful of ground balls and just be very consistent. And not to mention that you have Aaron Ashby, who's a 23-year-old kid that's thrown the ball extremely well last year after getting touched up his first couple times in the big leagues. And if you were really in a pinch, besides talking about any, you know, 30 late 20s to early 30s pitcher that you may have in AAA, you have one of your highest uh, pitching prospects and Ethan small who I think the Brewers would probably they wouldn't want to do it but if they needed to in a pinch where the say they had another injury to the uh, starting rotation you could pull up and feel pretty confident he'll be a decent pitcher in my opinion the, the Brewers have like seven starting pitchers that I think they would be confident running out every five days yeah and and it just so happens four of them probably would finish in the top 10 of the NL Cy Young this season if they continue to pitch they, the way they were. Eric Lauer right now, he's top 10 in baseball in ERA, top 15 to 20 in strikeouts. I, I can't find where he is in whip, but he, I mean, he has been minus that one start. He has been utterly dominant. And part of this is I, I added him on my fantasy team after the season started. Cause I saw, I saw his first two starts. All the writers were talking about, the 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 cutter the the cut fastball is up three four miles an hour he's missing so many more bats i he he's become that dominant guy i think there could be an argument today that he is pitching like their number two 
And now if we look at some of the responses on Twitter, Johnny C 1952 says Hunter and Willie being out is an absolute killer for this offense. They'll manage without Freddie. I'm sure they'll manage if both Hunter and Willie are out for expense, or I'm not sure they'll manage if both Hunter and Willie are out for an extended time. And then uh, Adam Capella, I'm probably butchering that last name. Hunter plus Willie is a killer to the offense. I trust the Brewers to Frankenstein a Freddie. Now we have other comments from the King. Rory says fastball Freddie because it's like losing a starting quarterback. Not everyone is cut out to be one. Adamus and Renfro injuries hurt defensively, but you are hoping to plug in and don't commit any errors and can at least get on base while batting. My argument there is if Wisconsin loses Graham Mertz, they have absolutely nothing that you would feel confident in stepping in and succeeding. Chase Wolf, Deacon Hill, they're not going to win the Big Ten West if they start a quarterback. In baseball, you can lose a starter, but a starter only pitches once every five days. Losing a starting quarterback means your season ends. There isn't really an equivalent to that in baseball. And one that I actually really like, it is a beer MILW Nick. Nick Lyons says, Willie being out puts weaker bats in play regularly. Arias cannot play everywhere. We lose his bat, hurt our pitchers more with defensive downgrades and less quality bats in the lineup. And I 100% agree with that. I think the same argument can be made for Renfro in that regard. Well, you're definitely not going to have a better arm than Renfro's. Um, Now, he's not known for his defensive prowess or even, I would say, his um, range. Range. But he has made a few plays, like running into the fence, where it's like, I didn't really expect Hunter Renfro to make that play. I think he's been better defensively than what the Brewers thought they were getting. Obviously, they knew they had the arm. And if you look at his numbers... If he extrapolated out what he's done through the first two months so far this season into a full year, it'd be arguably his best career season. Yep. Stern's the wizard. Stern's the handsome wizard. Are you sure he's handsome? Because I don't think he's Tom Brady handsome. Stern's I think it's something with his voice. The soothing wizard. Last year, it was at nine and a half. And I love that over because I didn't see how there was a way that they could um, lose more than two games. Narrator. They did. (laughs) They found a way to lose three. And it was pretty ugly in a couple of those games, like the Minnesotas of the world, like the Penn States of the world, that were games that they should have won. Well, they lost four. Overall, yes. Yeah. But they finished with nine wins. Yes. Well, that's counting the bowl game. So this is all regular season. And no week with me behind this mic would be complete without... Uh, blindly projecting ahead to Wisconsin's football season. But eight and a half is interesting. A couple of big questions I was thinking of and I brought up is entering the year and put the schedule aside, even though it, it, it is important. Is this team a full win worse than it was last year? Right. You mentioned 2021 set at nine and a half. Is this roster a full win worse? I would argue no. They obviously lose a lot on defense. However, they bring back guys in important spots. I like a a full win worse would be 2017 to 18, right? You lose most of your defense, especially the defensive line. Uh, You need to to replace guys up front on the offensive line. This group though, I think they're well-equipped. So roster wise, I think they are as strong as last year's team. Then all we need to see is does the quarterback do it? Obviously the big question. 
But I will say, you go the other way, why would I be skeptical of, say, them going over on the win total, is that nearly every tough game they have is on the road. They get the three cupcake non-conference, even though Washington State, Cameron Ward, quarterback, look out for him. He's a baller. Rest of the roster sucks, but he's an absolute baller. Uh, But they go to Ohio State. They go to Northwestern, and while Northwestern should be down again this year, playing at Northwestern, as we know, is always kind of a disaster. Then they go to Michigan State, and they go to Iowa, and they go to Nebraska. So the fact that you have a lot of those tough games on the road leads you to think that they could be in a little bit worse spot. They're going to be significant road underdogs at Ohio State. Likely slight road underdogs at Michigan State. Probably a road pick them at Iowa and probably a, a two-point favorite at Nebraska. And then a season-ending game against what I think will be a really good Minnesota team. So Do you he, tell me that the Badgers are two-point favorites against Nebraska at Nebraska? I'll hammer that right now. Well, Michigan was a three-point favorite at Nebraska last year, and Michigan was a stronger team than Wisconsin. Nebraska is going to be loved by Vegas and by the power rankings because they always are. Because what they do is they're, they're great. In, the numbers that Vegas loves is yards per play, total yards. YPP. So all that kind of stuff. That obviously takes away things that screwed Nebraska last year, which are giving away every game because of stupid turnovers with two minutes left in the fourth quarter and special teams. They're horrible at it. And ironically, uh, they got fined or uh, Scott Frost got punished for having too many special teams coaches. Clearly wasn't working. So, Ben, over the last seven to eight years, when I really started getting into more of the gambling side of things, I've been pretty good at, at hitting Wisconsin football, Green Bay Packer football, and Milwaukee Brewer baseball season win totals. I didn't think there was any way possible that that team could lose three games last year, which they managed to do. But you go back and watch. They easily should have won the Penn state game. They easily could have won that Minnesota game. And they were right there with the Notre Dame. I mean, those were three games that if they played them a hundred times, Wisconsin might win those more than 50% of the time. I would argue no, because quarterback play was the reason they lost all of those games. And that is a constant theme of why they lost. But if we're going to look at this year's team, I do kind of agree with you. I don't necessarily think they're a a full game worse roster wise, because when I look at the roster, the offensive line is going to be better this year, in my opinion, a lot better. The running back room with Braylon Allen being the main guy and being healthy because remember, Braylon Allen was playing the spring football coming out of high school and then had to turn around and, and play fall football, which we all talked about. He was 17 and blah, 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 blah. That room, in my opinion, will be better because it'll be healthier and Braylon Allen will be there full time. Hopefully, Ches Malusi's back week one. But if he is, that's a one-two punch that's lethal. And you mentioned it takes a lot of pressure off Braylon Allen. The receivers will probably take a step back just because Danny Davis and Kendrick Pryor are gone. They were there a long time, but I feel like the young guys that we've seen, we saw them in the bowl game against Arizona state. We saw them a little bit was it Skylar bell and uh, Marcus Allen. They have a lot of talent. They could be somebody. I disagree that they'll take a step back. And here's why Zach Heilprin has noted this Kenny and Heilprin Thursday, six to seven. We talk about this stuff a lot. 
Tremere DK is going to be the team's first true number one receiver since Quintez Cephas. And having a weapon like that, the team hasn't had a lot of true number one receivers in the last, what, 10, 15 years. Tremere DK is going to be that. Would you say, so... Jim Ray DK, a good player. He was there last year, but maybe didn't get as many looks because of the fact that Danny Davis and Kendrick Pryor were still there. And because Graham Mertz couldn't get him the football. But would you also say that Skylar Bell and Marcus Allen probably have more upside right now in their Wisconsin Badger career than what Danny Davis and Kendrick Pryor had, which felt like for like six years? Well, I will say that every time you go into a season spring ball, you will always hear hype about wide receivers and new wide receivers. But my personal opinion from having watched them, and then you also have Dean Ingram joining that group from corner. He could be a good guy in the slot. You have Keontes Lewis transfer from UCLA, tall, big, fast outside guy. I think their group as a whole is going to be much better than it was last year. I think they're going to give Graham Mertz more opportunities to make plays down the field. And it's going to be up to him, obviously. But there were also moments, like you go back to that Minnesota game, there were a couple 50-50 balls Graham Mertz threw a lot of 50-50 balls, some of them poorly thrown, but some of them were intercepted and or fell incomplete due to a lack of play by the wide receiver. So I think that side of the game will be helped. And then if you look at the defensive side of the football, I know they lost Matt Henningsen. Obviously, he was drafted by the Denver Broncos, but Keanu Benton coming back is huge. I think that defensive line will still be pretty solid. We know that the linebackers are going to be good. They've been acquiring linebacker talent and recruiting linebackers like crazy like the last decade. And we saw that they brought in some secondary help via the uh, transfer portal. I feel like the defense, along with Jimmy Leonard's uh, leadership defensive coordinator, will still be pretty solid. Will it be as good as the best defense in the country like they were last year? Probably not. They'll take a step back, but they'll be still a tough defense. It's going to be, they're going to be damn good. I think they're going to be underrated. SP Plus right now actually has them as the best rated defense in the country. And take away the top end Georgias of the world. I kind of agree. The defensive line uh, has NFL talent and is deep outside linebacker is crazy good and is deep inside linebacker should be fine. And the secondary is good. So I, but I wanted to, to frame all of this like this. So we just talked about the roster and I mean, I think it is maybe in a better spot going into the year, all dependent on whether Graham Mertz can get it done. The eight and a half number. I want to push it to nine because a lot of people think nine and three. And I agree. I think it goes over eight and a half. But if the line was nine, would it be over or would it be under? I have a poll up right now at Benzy Kenny on Twitter. I asked this earlier today. And right now, 50.6% say over nine, 49.4% say under. I think nine is the right number because when you look at how the schedule lines up, you have seven guaranteed wins. Or you would hope they're guaranteed. I I could see them losing one, but going into the year, I would count these as wins. Three non-conference games, Illinois, Northwestern, and Purdue. And some people say Purdue might be more of a toss-up. Wisconsin hasn't lost to them since 2004. So until they do, I'm calling that a win. One guaranteed loss, Ohio State. And then two of them, I would lean as losses at this point at Iowa and at Michigan State. Really tough places to play. They're going to be good teams they're facing. And then two of them, I would lean yes at Nebraska versus Minnesota. So when you look at those final four, the question is Iowa, Minnesota, Nebraska, uh, Michigan State. 
does the team have a better chance of going three and one in those games or one and three? How about we sit on this? We'll shelf this topic. I'll go to the phones and we will come back to this later in the show. Sound good, Ben? Yeah. All right. We'll go into line one. Corey and Marshall. Is this you? It's me. How you doing? What up, Corey? Well, I guess. Hey, good morning, Ben. I was actually calling to chime in on this topic. So if you guys are dropping it. Yeah, no, hit it. All right. So my concern is I get what you're saying about the roster. And I like hearing that about the defense because I tend to agree on that, Ben. My concern, again, is always the wide receivers. How tall is Jimmy DK? I, I know that's not running. I think he's like 5'11", 6 foot, isn't he? Um, I don't know how tall he is specifically. I'm I'm looking it up now. But I can tell you, Keontes, he is 6 feet. Jimmy DK, okay. six, 6 feet, uh, 190-something. I don't know. I need to pull up my spring roster. But uh, Keontes Lewis, the transfer they brought in, yeah. It, it was really confusing because he was listed at 6'2", and then some said he was 6'1". I'm calling him 6'2", but he's tall, okay. and he's okay. big, so they have height. Okay. So that's good to hear. My concern, again, it goes back to Graham, and I know we always not trying to bomb on the guy too much, but if he's still starting by and having the same type of turnover prone and just, I'm sorry, idiotic play yep. that he had, then you saw it as well as I did, Ben, and Nelson calling, you know, almost trying to spike a ball and force down in the bowl game and stuff like stupid stuff like that. They're going to win seven games. If he's still playing the whole year and they are stubborn and starting him and he's still throwing the ball to in the triple coverage and fumbling it and just not looking clean, they'll win seven games. So that's my opinion. Now that's an if obviously if he, you know, we're, that's kind of a, a weasel word there. You're asking how many do they win? I'll say nine. Nine. So Otherwise, you would go yeah. over eight and a half. If you yeah. had to guess though, over under of nine, would you say they have a yeah. better chance to win fewer or more? Fewer. Interesting. I I I tend to agree because a lot of the biggest games late in the year, I mentioned it earlier, but they're on the road. And right. Graham Mertz, and the the sample size is small. Because 2020, there were no fans. And last year, a lot of the road games were against bad teams or in bad stadiums. Graham Mertz has played one big-time true road game in his career. It's at Minnesota. And safe to say, really struggled. Right? And that was a good defense. That was a good team he was playing. Not great by any means. But one true road game was that. The question entering that stretch is... Has he figured it out enough to a take care of the football, but b go into a hostile environment and win? Because at Ohio State, safe to say it's not going to happen. Then you get those last three, and you have a couple cupcakes before that. But you get those last three that are going to be tough, and I it, it'll all come down to him. Well, I think we I think we all agree, all three of us, that uh, since Barry Alvarez took over, the Wisconsin Badgers have been a really good tier two team, but they've oh, never yeah. been able to make that. Tier one, the Alabamas of the world, you know, like the LSUs of the world, the Ohio States of the world. If you look at what they've done the last 20 years with the end of Barry Alvarez, obviously Brett Bielema, Gary Anderson, and Paul Christ, they've won in the regular season nine games, 15 out of 20 seasons. Yeah. And I mean, part of that is a a big testament to them, I would say. Part of that is also the Big Ten West and six guaranteed wins a year and playing absolutely nobody in the non-conference. That helps a lot, too. And I think that's where you get 
some of the fan consternation. It isn't being spoiled. It's because they win constantly nine some games, but like there's always that one or two games a year where you're just pulling your hair out. And you're like, what are you guys doing? Like Minnesota or, last year. Like Minnesota or like an Ohio State game where you're like, okay, let's see how they measure up. And then you watch it. And you guys know as well as I do. It's like disconcerting because you're like, oh my God, the yeah. speed difference, the size. You're like, what? You're like, okay, so are we like, just in this purgatory of them just being like a tier one, two, like it's almost like an AB that you used to get, you know, when you're in college, the grading system, like where they're just like continuously tease you and they can't really keep up with the big boys. So that's where I think the kind of, am I in at least like the, the consternation is starting to come in a little bit on that. So you mentioned Ben 50, 50, and that's the same thing I thought too, like in those games at Iowa at MSU and uh and nebraska i tend to think they kind of own nebraska a little bit you know they're kind of in their head to an extent so i can see that more as a not for sure win but better right. than 50 chance the iowa i don't know how good their roster is and how many guys they lost it's always tougher there just because it's the atmosphere and all the other things that go along with it but yeah, their their defense is going to be great again. Stacked defensive line, good linebackers, reloaded secondary. Uh, really, same linebacking core. Secondary is great. Running back, they're pretty deep uh, there on offense. Good wide receivers. One of the best tight ends in the country. The only questions are offensive line. After last year, it was horrible. And then if Spencer Petras starts a quarterback, that is one of the worst quarterbacks in the conference. So they'll be similar to last year, I think. Right now, 51.7% say under. So it's pretty much 50-50, pretty much 100 votes in. That's what I expected it to be because 9-3 and three seems to be a common guess. That's what Zach and I both predicted under our head at the I'm end right of our show. I'm right there with you guys. But if it, it do they have a better chance pretty much of winning double-digit games in the regular season or going 8-4 and four or worse? And right now, I, <clears throat> I, I'm I, towing the fence here, which is not something you should normally do in this position. I I could see eight and four happening, I think, honestly, as a more likely scenario. I mentioned uh, when we were talking with Corey, Graham Mertz has played one big time true road game in his career. That was at Minnesota last year. They got a, a bunch of the road games were, I would say, not the toughest of, of tests. Notre Dame was neutral site, right, uh, in Chicago. And then they were at Illinois. Grammerts didn't have to do anything. They were at Purdue. Grammerts threw eight passes, right? Like that was that was one of the easiest wins of his career, probably. And then they were at Rutgers and Grammerts looked really good. But Rutgers was not a good football team. That was a 52 to three game. And then they go to Minnesota. And that was that was the loss. So going into this year, that's the big question is what can he do on the road? We're going to see it early against Ohio State. And I think one of the problems will be that's going to skew our perception of kind of the team and also him because Ohio State is loaded. Uh, Last year was their down year. Their defense is going to be a lot better. They bring in the defensive coordinator from Oklahoma State who is, by all means, a really, really good defensive coordinator. They're going to be really good on both sides of the ball. So they're already 16-point underdogs. If they lose that game, that skews our perception. Then they go to Northwestern. I think that's a huge game for Graham Mertz's career because it is his first big-time game at Northwestern, meaning there will be fans in the stands. Now, is there a big difference between an empty stadium and what their normally fan stadium looks like? No. 
but it's still uh, like the first real game at Northwestern that he will play. And while Northwestern is not going to be a, a very good team, I think their over under this year is set at four and a half. I, that still is a, it's a scary test. We've seen many Wisconsin teams fall flat in Evanston. So that's going to be a huge one. And then the next week they go to Michigan state and it's a Michigan state secondary. That was horrendous last year. Could not stop a nosebleed. It should be a little bit better this year while not great, but that's a huge game also for, for the trajectory of his career and the season. And then they close this, the, they close the year at Iowa at Nebraska and then home against Minnesota. The, the big question to me is what does Grammerts look like on the road? Because the home road splits from last year were interesting. Uh, you can't really see if he was better in, in either one because of the defenses he was playing right at home. He got Penn state, good defense, Michigan, great defense, uh, Eastern Michigan was a cupcake and then army, Nebraska, Northwestern, Iowa. He was very up and down, but that's been the story of his career away. I, I mean, he was pretty good for the most part. He was great at Rutgers and then horrible at Minnesota. So th- I don't really think there's much we could take from the past guessing forward with what Mertz could look like. But the, the big question is what can he do on the road? Because if he can go in and beat Michigan state and beat Iowa and beat Nebraska, then that's a 10 win season. If he can't, then that's an eight win season. I think it's that simple. Yeah. I look at the schedule more in a basic sense and I go, okay, guaranteed wins against Illinois state guaranteed wins against, um, Washington State, New Mexico State, Illinois, at Northwestern, I believe. So it might not be a pretty win, but I think that's one I'd lock in. Also, Purdue, Maryland. I know Nebraska continues to recruit decently well, and it seems like we're just waiting for Scott Frost. The only reason why I say it won't be a guaranteed win is just because it's at Nebraska. But I think they have seven guaranteed wins. Then I look at the Ohio State game. I think that's a guaranteed loss. So you're sitting there at seven and one and your last four games, I think are toss ups with the Michigan States of the world, which is at Michigan state at Iowa at Nebraska and then Minnesota, just because Minnesota has seemed to be after the Wisconsin Badgers reeled off all those wins in a row for the acts consecutively Minnesota, since PJ Fleck has taken over two and two just seems to be a little pain in the ass of Wisconsin. So I think I I think I would say guaranteed seven wins. You split the other two toss ups. That leaves you at nine and three. So I agree with you. You and Zach, our sports director Zach Heilprin, at nine and three. Now, if I look at the history of Wisconsin football in the last twenty years, I told you that fifteen out of twenty seasons they would go over that eight and a half number. But if we're playing at nine here, which is our Twitter poll, they have went over nine wins seven times in the last 20 years with five pushes. So, I mean, that's still 12 out of 20 years. You're either getting your money back or you're winning, but yes, just seven times out of uh, 20 in the last 20 seasons. They're like, but we've talked about this. They're the extremely good tier two team where they consistently win nine or 10 games. But I also agree with you. And this is kind of what I said last season when I put a nice little chunk of change down on Wisconsin to go over nine and a half last year. I thought that they would go 10 and two worst case scenario. But I also said this to Ebo when I was explaining why I think if Jack Cohn was the starting quarterback for the Wisconsin Badgers last year, 
No doubt in my mind that over nine and a half cashes, they're probably a 11 win team in my opinion. So much is on Graham Mertz because of how much better the line's going to be. Now they know who their top running backs are. They still have Chimray DK and a couple young receivers that have some upside. They have some tight ends that are either coming off injury or have a little bit of upside. The defense is still going to be good, and they did a great job filling in that secondary through the transfer portal. It hinges on Graham Mertz and how well he plays. If he plays well this year, I think they could win 11 games. If he doesn't play well this year and he's super inconsistent like he has been, like Corey said, would I be surprised if they win seven games? Maybe a little bit, but if I look at how I think Graham Mertz has played when he's been given time, I look at the schedule where I think there's 17 guaranteed wins, and then I look at past history, I'll be a bit of a homer, and I'll say I would lean to the over. But I do think they win nine games and go nine and three. But one thing that was brought up, and I believe it was our caller Zobin in lacrosse, he was talking about the extra inning rule and the extra inning rule that they incorporated in 2020 with that shortened 60-game COVID year. And the rule is where once you enter extra innings, a runner automatically starts on second base, and then you play it out with no outs and like it's a normal inning. Now, some people absolutely hate it. Some people like it. We were talking about that a little earlier about how, you know, they were, they as in Major League Baseball was trying to use the excuse for this new rule in 2020 to save pitchers and save uh, longer games because they had such a condensed season where they were trying to fit, uh, you know, 60 games into two months. And well, that really, is what it did. It, it did. But also, like I said to you and Zobin, I believe that it was also the Trojan horse for them trying to say, hey, we're also trying to speed up the games. They don't want to see 15, 16, 19 inning games because I I will give Major League Baseball that most of the time when a runner starts on second base, you don't see more than one, two, maybe three extra innings before a, a winner is is is. uh. But isn't shortening the game and saving pitchers the same thing? Kind of in a way, but you could also use one pitcher who throws like a, we'll say a no hitter and the game's only two hours and 10 minutes. You yep. could also, you could also say you could have 15 different pitchers pitch, use your entire roster when it was expanded to 28 and the game could be five hours long. Yes. But taking away the outliers of the marathons, those games are the ones that kill pitching staffs and they take forever. I would say they work hand in hand in uh, 2020. There were 78 extra inning games in that 60 game season. There were, there was not one game to make it past the 13th inning. It was the first time since 1901 that no game had made it to at least the 15th. So I would say it's been, it's been working like that. Then last year, one game did make it to the 16th inning at uh, Dodgers Padres. Uh, and in that game, yeah, you know, two, they both scored two in the 15th Dodgers scored two in the 16th. So uh, it doesn't really help shortening the nine inning games. I think the, the, the 100% bigger uh, 
the bigger purpose for it was to save pitching staffs and to obviously take out the outliers. It's worked perfectly in that regard. It's it's completely eliminated having position players come on to throw the 17th inning. Now, when they originally did it, I wasn't a fan. But I've actually kind of started to come around to it. But I will I will say this. When you, you mentioned these shorter games in general, I am a fan of if you're playing double headers, you're still going to play nine freaking innings. This is Major League Baseball. This isn't Babe Ruth. I agree. Uh, the seven inning double headers, they can never, ever come back, please. But I, like I said, I have come around a little bit to the runner on second base. I actually kind of like it. And the reason why I like it, we talk about some of the rule changes in the last three years in Major League Baseball. And one that is just the newest is Universal DH. And I think, and I made this argument oof, when they started talking about uh, using Universal DH in the national league. I think that it actually hurts the brewers because I think a lot of people would say that Craig council is a pretty strategic manager and likes to uh, go about, uh, go about things different ways to get a better result. And that is, you know, maneuvering, whether that be his pitching, his pitching staff or a batting order or whatever it is. I think it actually hurt the brewers, but I do think there is some strategy when it comes to the 10th inning and someone starting on second base, do you want to bunt them over? Are you going to bring in a guy like Josh Hader to absolutely shut down the other team? Like there's a lot of different things that you can do offensively and defensively pitching wise that I think could really impact the game, especially when you know that it's not going to go very long. Well, the universal DH hurts the brewers because they don't have another great hitter to step in and take that role. Right. I, I brought up the Phillies earlier, but the whole reason that Bryce Harper has been in the lineup every day, he sprained his UCL in his elbow, and now he is able to be the universal DH and play every day. So it helps teams like that and like the Phillies who have eight DHs on their team anyway. They're horrible at fielding. They don't have, they rarely have any good fielders. Most of them are DHs that are turned into left fielders. The Brewers, on the other hand, don't have another great bat to, to throw in there. Uh, but you're right about about the extra innings. I, I would say it helps the Brewers. I mean, right now especially, I would say it helps where they're at because without Josh Hader, and yes, you need him to come on and close out those innings, but without Josh Hader, your bullpen's shorter, it, it's shallower, it's definitely less talented at the top, avoiding having to go, and, and we talked about this with the 11-game road trip, avoiding having to go five bullpen guys deep during nights where you might go into 14 innings, I think will be critical for them because they just can't withstand that right now. Well, in a perfect world where the Brewers have a healthy Josh Hader and he's, he's at, he's in, at the ball game. If you go to the extra innings, whether you're home or away, you know, you can bring in Josh Hader in that 10th inning and absolutely mow down the other team. The guy from second base won't move. He can get comfy right there. And then on the other hand, whether you're the home or away team, you know that you have Josh Hader in your back pocket where he's literally been perfect the entire season. He's only given up two hits. You can go attack that depending on where you're at in the lineup, however you want. If the guy's starting on second base and say you're down at the bottom of the order, it's pretty easy to say all of a sudden play a little small ball like some of the people like Tommy that calls in from time to time would love you bunt them over the third base. Now you have two opportunities to get them in because you know, hater is going to shut him, shut the other team down. Like that's an option for the Milwaukee Brewers. Now they haven't used it much 
They did use it a little bit uh, last year, but it just goes so many different ways on how you want to attack the inning. I The only reason why I've come around to it is because there seems to be more strategy with it if you really wanted to use the strategy. I feel like a lot of teams still continue to play it straight up like they have the other nine innings. I don't know about you, but that's kind of what I've noticed. I think majority of teams, when they get the extras, continue to just play like they did the nine innings before when there could be a ton of strategy that's actually involved for that set inning. Yeah, I still, when it comes to the man on second and extra innings, I st- it depends on who is at the plate. If Lorenzo Cain is at the plate, I'm okay with him bunting because he has shown that he's not going to hit the ball very well, right? We've, we've seen this for a little while. I am still categorically against putting a above average to average hitter up there and giving the other team an out. I think whenever that is happening, and there's a great book on this by Keith law, it's called smart baseball. And it talks about the run, the probability of scoring runs in certain situations, for instance, take away the extra inning thing. But when you have a runner on first base with nobody out, your probability of scoring is around 50-50, right next to 50-50. If you bunt a guy over to second in that situation, your odds drop to 44%. Like it is it has been shown throughout time that while when you when it works out, it's like, oh, they just scored because of small ball. I have always argued that I would rather put the bat in my talented players' hands because giving the other team an out is only helping them get out of the inning and actually does not help you score. See, I actually disagree to an extent with you, and the reason why I disagree is it depends on how many runs you're trying to score. I'm If you're trying to get one run because, say, you're tied or you're down by one and it's getting later in the game, I can I understand it because when you play small ball, you're looking for like one run an inning, right, Ben? You're not looking for the five run inning. That That's where you put hits together. That's where you hit home runs. If you're in the extra innings where it's tied and you need to get that runner in, it makes sense to me to potentially want to play small ball because you're only looking to score one inning. Yeah, small ball is an, inning, is an inning killer because you're giving away outs. You're not going to score a ton of runs doing it, but it gives you, I think, a decent shot at scoring one one single run if that makes sense but the the large data the the data that's been seen for years and years and years of when teams do this not only does it reduce the number of runs you are expected to score in the inning down from uh, around 0.85 to 0.6 i i found this excerpt that i was talking about it it reduces the amount of runs you're expected to score but also significantly reduces your probability of scoring any if we're talking about the large numbers and the context is necessary with who is at the plate and let's say it's a really fast guy, then yeah, I'm fine with that because they have a chance to beat it out. But if I'm just bunting merely to try to get the guy over to third, it also should be said that bunting a guy over to third might not be the easiest thing in the world, right? And, and bunting off these really good pitchers, it's not a sure thing that you're going to get it down and you're going to get the guy over. So I, I've always been against the idea of you need to score that guy from second. Let's bunt him over to third. See, I'd I've, rather have my good guys hit. If I know a guy is starting on second base, I'd be more willing to bunt him over to third than say if a guy started on first base with no outs than bunting him to second. I am against both of them. See, and this is, this is, it's funny because didn't you say earlier today, you're like, I am a baseball purist. I am a baseball purist in many respects, but I am also one that I, I mean, I've, I'm taking a big interest in 
how can we get smarter when following the game? And part of that is not focusing. We've come a long way. We don't look at win-loss records anymore to look at pitchers. They're like Rick Porcello won 25 games a couple years hey, ago. He had some good years in Detroit and Boston. Yeah, he, he had okay year, but he had like a 3-9. Like that's not a 20 and 5. It's cuz every time he took the mound, he got 7 runs of run support. Then you have Jacob DeGrom. He pitches to a 1-8, but he has a 12 and 11 record. Wins and losses and those kind of things there are ways to get smarter when looking at the sport and trying to see how we can describe a player's performance and, and how they play. I think along with that, there are ways that I think we could get smarter with what we ask our managers or our teams to do in those situations. And I mean, the more I've, I've looked, the more I've read, the more I've watched, I I've become categorically against bunting unless it is a pitcher who can hit another hitter who is hitting like a pitcher, Lorenzo Cain, uh, or a guy that's really fast and can beat it out. For instance, like you, you look up and down the Brewers lineup. If Tyrone Taylor's at the plate and there's a runner on second, I want Tyrone Taylor hitting. See, my biggest thing is I'm not I'm not a hey let's play small ball and bunt every single time. I think it's it's that it does have its niche in the game. I think the bigger thing though is with how today's baseball is, it's all hit a home run or strike out. When you have a guy starting on second. There's so many times where they'll strike out and that runner will never leave second. Like, or even last night for the Brewers, they found a way to load the bases. They got a hit. They got a walk and then found a way to hit into a double play and then strike out. But I don't think that's an indictment on bunting or not bunting the guy over. They just, they had three chances with the bases loaded to get a hit and they didn't do it, right? But as soon as you give the other team an out, now you have two chances to do it. There, uh, It's automatically shortening your chances. Think about it. Let's say you bunt the guy over to third, and then the other team says, okay, now we're going to intentionally walk the hitter to set up the double play. Then a double play ball is rolled. Then you only have one swing at scoring that guy from third. So that's where I stand. All right, let's go to the phones here. 608-321-1670. Who do we got here? Line one. Holy crap, you guys. You ever breathe? Hey, Once in Paul. a while. Hey, Paul, uh, how we doing? So, um, I got to say, Ben's going to want to invest in a map of the United States. Why is that? Because because Bismarck's, in fact, in North Dakota, not South Dakota. That's I, not that's not to be confused with Santa Fe, Rhode Island. Understood. But, um, <laughs> yeah, so there's that. And then the whole pitcher thing, dude, you got to let that rest. Nolan Ryan pitched hundreds of innings a year and pitched for like 50 years. Wait, I haven't talked about that today. No, you did. You're talking about saving pitchers when you were talking about shortening games and saving pitchers. Well, no, I'm talking about bullpen arms, not having to go three innings in extras and then pitch the next day. Oh yeah. Cause dude, I'm so sick of hearing that. These are professional athletes. Like I would say bad mechanics is more is worse for an arm than high pitch count. Okay, you know, yes, I, I'm i not going to disagree with that, but look at how every manager manages his bullpen. When a guy pitches a couple days in a row, then they get a day off. If a guy goes out and throws three innings, he's not going to pitch the next day. So if you're playing 11 games in 10 days, you're not going to have enough arms to get through it. That's how every manager does it. It's not just me who tries to look at the workload of bullpen arms. No, I just think that the whole nerd stat fest thing, like pitch count, whatever, I... I get that it's there for a reason because they, I don't know, they think that this normally happens. If it's going to happen, it happens in here. 
sometimes you just got to play the game. Like, Polly, let's say it together. Pitch count is for losers. It is for losers. I'm not talking about pitch count. I'm talking about you can't run a reliever out there four days in a row. Well, I mean, is there less effective? It's shown the more those guys throw and the less like if they throw four days in a row by the fourth day, their fastball slower. They get less spin on all their pitches. They get fewer guys out. That's how it works. Well, no, I get that. But I'm just saying, like, if I don't know, it's happened ever since the beginning of time. You know what I mean? Our baseball time, I should say that. These guys, you know, I think we just mollycoddle them too much. I understand trying to conserve your, your, you know, you want you want to try and get get them out there at their best as often as possible. I understand that, but at the same time, like you just got to let it go, man. Like let them do their thing. They're getting paid more money now than any of the pitchers of the past ever did, who did three, four times the work. You know, I, I just think I just think there's too much. Too much stats and not enough uh, balls. You know what I mean? Paulie, quickly, I want to ask you one thing. Would you say the Brewers' pitching machine, if you will, the way that they bring up and develop pitchers, would you call it effective? Well, I mean, I don't really pay attention much to the Brewers. I know they have some really good pitchers right now, like, you know, one to four or five, whatever. But um, I I don't know. I I just think... Of course it's good now. This is probably the best I've ever seen it in my life. Right, and a lot of that has come from the way that they manage them throughout their careers, the way that they make sure their workload is enough to strengthen and not hinder their performance out on the mound. The guys that used to throw 120 pitches a game were also throwing 84 miles an hour. That's not true. Nolan Ryan never threw. Nolan Ryan is one of the greatest pitchers of all time. That's like comparing every quarterback to Tom Brady. Paulie, that's when men were men. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. Nolan Ryan wasn't even the highest pitch count guy there was. He threw a lot, but there was... It was normal then. Yeah, and they threw mid-80s. These guys are throwing upper 90s with crazy movement because they've gotten so much nastier on the mound. Naturally, okay. there's more strain on the arm, which means you have to you, you just have to look at how much they're throwing. You can't just say, "Oh, be a man and throw 140 pitches." That's not what that's not where the sport is today. Okay, well, the other thing is look at look at uh, Greg Maddox. He's one of the greatest pitchers of You're all time. You're naming all the greatest pitchers of all time. But, I'm but, naming but the guys that are in the middle of the rotation that need to have a certain level of workload to have success. Eric Lauer he, is not Nolan Ryan. He didn't throw. He didn't throw a hundred miles an hour. He was able to hit his spots. I mean, you can, you have a choice of what kind of pitcher you want to be. You don't have to throw at 104 miles an hour. Well, Paulie's the sober version of Charlie after rehab. Let's make no mistake. And two, any man I can tell any man who wears women's clothes by women's names is a fairy. Wait, did you hear Grant this morning? Yes, I heard Grant. And Grant dresses like a sissy fairy. He does short pants and lulus. I mean, if you're if you're a man, you're wearing clothes named by a woman. That's just. I'm sure you got your own bathroom now at Midwest Family, so that speaks a lot for you. Dave, what's your baseball take? Yeah, see, you know, I, I, I like the deflection. I wouldn't call it a deflection. I would, like That's a pointless... No. It, it's an absolutely to, pointless argument. I know. It sucks when I'm always right. Okay, now, scoring in the 10th, the Bunting versus the, the man on second base. 
you're the man of analytics. I mean, I hate to make you look foolish, Ben, because you're so young and inexperienced. Second base, you have one way to score. Hit. Third base, you've got eight different ways of scoring. Case closed. Dave, that's not... Why, that's why you bunt. Dave, first of all, a, a bun is not nearly a, a sure thing. It is not a 100% we're going to get him over eight every time. Different ways of Dave, would you rather eight, have eight. three opportunities to bring a guy in with a hit no. or only two? Because when you bunt no. him over, Dave, when you bunt him over to third and they intentionally yeah. walk the next guy to set up the double play, maybe intentionally walk both to get to a worse hitter, yeah. and then Andrew McCutcheon rolls one over to second base and you completely squandered your chance eight at winning. different ways you have a score. Count, count him to score in pass ball, air, balk, walk. A suicide squeeze. Dave, when's squeeze. the last time you've seen a balk end a baseball game? I'm just saying, but you got eight. You're an analytic guy. You've got eight different chances of scoring from third versus one. I'll take my chances. If you can't uh, eight different ways of scoring from third, you don't belong in baseball versus well, one way. First of all, when you when you let the guy hit to start, not only do a lot of the outcomes end up with the guy on third with one out anyway, but you're also actually giving him a chance to win the game. Have you noticed that a lot of the best teams are letting their guys swing the bat? Like I've said, if it's a not good hitter up there, bunt him over. I'm fine with that. If it's Lorenzo Kane, bunt him over. But if you have the bat in Hunter Renfro's hands, you just want to bunt the guy over for Christian Yelich to roll into a double play? First of all, if Yelich can't put the, if a baseball player can't put the ball in play, then guess what? That, that's on them. But you're an, but you're an analytics guy. So I'm, I'm, I'm doing analytics, eight different ways versus one. I don't care who's batting. You just got eight different ways of winning. The numbers say you have a higher chance of scoring runs when you do not give the other team an out. It's kind of hard to think when you're on third base with less than two outs and you got eight different chances of scoring. That's kind of hard to do the math. I mean, obviously, I know you're... Dave, half of your eight ways to score him are things that just don't happen commonly. What are we, do we, hey, why are we relying on a pass ball to win a baseball game? The Brewers get four or five hits a game out of, I see, ninth, a minimum of 27 batters, and you get four or five hits a game, or eight different ways of on one pitch going from third base. There's your analytics again. Uh, it's, you, it's, know, you, know, you get five hits a game, four hits a game. You're that's because the lineup isn't that's, great. Exactly. That's to my point. Then why take a chance and when you're only getting four or five hits Six it's a game, doing it my way. My way wins. Your way is because, it, because if I had Shaq, if I had Shaquille O'Neal at the free throw line, I would rather give him three chances to make one instead of two chances to make one. Horrible free throw shooter, but three chances will help. Has nothing to do with the non sequitur and guy on third base. You got a better chance of getting a pass ball than you get a single from second base. Uh, that is just objectively false. I, I, I mean, I, I'm not surprised you like to take the bat out of, out of the hands of the team's best oh, hitters. I want to win. And, and when you're batting 200 versus uh, the chance of guys scoring third base, yeah, I'll take my chance of a guy batting 180, 170, um, on base of 250. Yeah, I want that guy bad. That's I'm the numbers of a pitcher. Listen, I said if the hitter is that bad, I'm fine bunting. I am talking about for the guys that are good. Hunter Renfro is not a bad hitter. He leads the team in everything. He's hitting 268, 270, OPS in the 800s. That is is better than MLB average. He is a good hitter. 
I don't know, Nelson. It's, it, this generation just doesn't get it. Oh, that's what it is. No, this generation's gotten smarter. There's a reason that there's a reason that these decisions are being made in in the smarter way. Because the last generation, if you want to go there, we're awarding Hall of Fame memberships because a guy won games. When does a starter? When is the win actually what we use to define starter success? Jacob Degrom had a one seven. He went eleven and twelve. Rick Porcello won almost 30 games. He had a 4-1. And when do you give a guy a Cy Young who wins 12 games, like Corbin Burns last year? Because he was the best pitcher in baseball. Participation trophy, 12 games. Can you imagine Fergie Jenkins and Tom Seaver and Steve Carlton? Oh, God. Give me a break. Now you got to win 12 and you, get, and you get a participation trophy. Dave, when you do your job and someone else next to you messes up, do you think that should be an indictment on you? That's, that, that's their problem. If I trained them and they still screw up, they're fired. Well, See, That's my generation. We don't give guys third, fourth, or fifth chances and coddle them and hug and kiss them. You can't handle it, next man up. All right. I, I, I mean, this is going nowhere. I, uh, I get tired of winning all the time. It, it, that's all not right, what Reggie. this is. All this back in my day stuff. You guys say back in my day, then you name all of the greatest people to ever do it. It's exactly. like, yeah. Back there where you had well, to how about all the bad ones, the Dave? How about all the bad ones that weren't good because the decisions were made poorly? How about that? You had to hit the ball back there. Now, if you bat 250, you get, I mean, you're, you're considered a uh, Dave, World back then, All-Star. people were throwing 83. You can't say it wasn't easier to hit. Pete Rose, Pete Rose is a tremendous hitter. I don't think he would break 300 today. 83 miles an hour. Obviously, you better go back and check your history, my, my, uh, my young man. That's back then when pitchers were through nine innings, through 12 innings. Now, my arm hurts after five innings. Dave, the average fastball, I'll go back to 2002 even, which is, I, and the trend is, is significant. But 2002, the average fastball velocity, 88 miles an hour. Last year, it was 94. So if you, if you extrapolate that backwards, we're talking mid to low 80s. See, I think I understand here, Dave. Hang on, Nowadays, you have 300 pitchers versus 100 pitchers. You can't use those numbers. They're a non sequitur. All right, guys. Thanks. Well, because the guys playing today are better athletes. Is, is that why they're on the injured reserve list every other day? No, it's because they throw harder. There's more strain on the arm. Because in order to succeed today, you have to be a certain level of nasty on the mound. And they're better That's athletes. That's why they get hurt. That's why they get hurt. They got, today's technology and health should allow you not to be put on the IR. You're just, your generation is much as much as this. Oh, my arm hurts. I better go on IR. I just think, you know, Dave being Dave, he just doesn't get it because he can't see. Honestly, he can't see, and he can barely hear. Dave doesn't know what baseball is because, Dave, no offense, you probably never played baseball and obviously never will play baseball. All right, all right, all right. Okay, me, Rowdy, and... All right, I'm not gonna. No, I'm not gonna endorse the uh, the caller on caller violence that we have seen today. Oh, he calls me a midget. It's okay. All right, Z. Appreciate it. Thanks for the call, it. Z. Later, guys. Uh, I said I was going to open up the phone. Yeah, I know. Anyone else out there, 608-321-1670. But I will say this. You're wrong in the fact that when you say guys in the day through 83, that's just not true. The average fastball velocity was mid to low 80s. The best, was, the best pitchers were great at it, but I am not going to come compare. Like, I use Eric Lauer for an example. 
I don't want to compare a above average to solid starter today to say Nolan Ryan, one of the greatest pitchers to ever touch a baseball. Poor guys are throwing harder because like you said, one, the strength training is much better. The nutrition is much better. The analytics on, on how to build guys and make them better is just simply better. I would argue part of that is workload. But the fact is, no one was throwing, I'm sorry, Ben, no one was throwing 80 miles an hour. You had guys in the past that threw hard that were throwing 93, 95. Now that 93, 95 is 103, 105. Your average guy was probably throwing in the upper 80s, low 90s. Now that's a guy that is seen as extremely slow. Not not the fact no one was throwing in the low 80s that was consistently playing in the big leagues. Greg like, Maddox at the end of his career was throwing 85. Yeah, he was also 40 plus years old. And and that's a guy that by the way used to throw in the mid 90s. I know. But but there there are guys that that had success with slower pitches. I I don't I think guys in the past Guys from like the 1920s, 1940s, 1950s—they throw harder than you think. They just didn't throw a hundred miles an hour like you see a lot of people now. They, the good ones, were probably in the 95s. They weren't down in the low 80s. Hmm. The human body has not changed that much. It's changed. It's made a lot more people able to throw harder, but it hasn't changed that much to where you're seeing a 20 mile an hour difference. Yeah. I, I, I will understand that. Some of that is hyperbole. I also think there is something to be said about low 80s. Some pitchers were effective throwing low 80s as recent as the the late 80s, mid 90s, I guess. We'll go back to the phones. We have one more caller for this segment. Line one, who do we got? Hey, this is Conrad, currently now in Georgia. Hey, Conrad. What's going on, Conrad? How are you? I'm doing good, guys. Just wanted to let you know uh, that you guys have a great show, and uh, Papa Ebo would be proud as he's on vacation. You guys have held it down. Appreciate it, man. I've uh, been listening to you all morning. And uh, just good content and good uh, good arguments. I mean, you you guys are never going to win against Dave, and it's not that you – it's because he's just Dave. He gets everybody right where he wants them because he's confusing. I mean, if if we really want to break it down, <laughs> we just said that he's not he's not the analytics guy. He came shooting with analytics, <laughs> and he doesn't even understand it. I, I don't think you it was know? analytics. So, he was counting on his fingers one to eight. <laughs>